We have some interesting headlines to be able to go over today on making the argument. Also, prices keep increasing, which coincidentally is one of the headlines we're going to be talking about. Plus, everybody and their brother seems to have a different definition for inflation these days, especially all the politicians talking about it who clearly don't understand what it actually is. So we're going to answer for you today the question of what is inflation. Plus, we're going to get to the all-important question of who's to blame, because if you're listening to the Biden administration, it's everything from greedy corporations, greed in general, Vladimir Putin, now Governor Abbott. And we're going to go ahead and answer that question for you and equip you to be able to make the arguments surrounding the whole question of inflation and how it affects prices. Plus, we're also going to give a, a special bonus section today during our speakeasy where we talk about how to survive the coming inflation-induced zombie apocalypse. Yeah, I don't know. Apocalypse. So. Apocalypse. Yeah, how, how, to, how to go ahead and survive that. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society. And thanks for joining us on the show today. If you're on the YouTube channel, hit that subscribe and like button and drop us a comment with your thoughts on today's topic. If you're on the audio platforms on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a review and thanks so much for listening. Now let's get into the introductions. All right. As always, your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a good guy. My lovely wife, Tina. We have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And, of course, our producer, Nicholas Hamilton. It's a pleasure to be here, and let's get into our first headline. All right. First topic of the day, first article is, Texas buses drop off migrants which block the U.S. Capitol in Washington. I, I, I get it. There's two things you got to laugh about this. One, it's it's kind of a boss move by Governor Abbott. So they've... You know, all the governors along the border have been talking for a while about, like, look, we have a crisis down here. It's gotten so bad that the media has had to acknowledge it. Um, now, the administration, their first move was to send down Kamala Harris to fix uh, the, the problem, which, of course, cleared it up quickly. I Wait, wouldn't even say send down to fix. That's true. I, she because didn't go anywhere. Biden appointed Harris to, like, solve the problem or address the crisis. But didn't she spend something like three or four, maybe even like five or six months without actually visiting the board, like I'm pretty sure that she it was went to Europe. Definitely, she, yeah, I'm she pretty sure she went the, to Europe first before she, she even did. Went she did. She went to a border. border. Yeah. She went to a border. Just wasn't the wasn't our southern border. She, they she, sent her down there to laugh nervously <laughs> at Governor. Mission accomplished. Abbott. Yes. <laughs> she no. She has solved the problem at the border the same way I used to solve the problem of my homework uh, and not wanting to do it is by simply ignoring it and then going somewhere else. <laughs> That's that's essentially how she did it. Well, but but again, this whole move of Governor Abbott saying, okay, because for a while there, this has been a common practice because what most people don't understand about immigration policy in the United States is if you come in and you get picked up by CBP, um, you know, immigration, et cetera, they, they might detain you for a short period of time. But then what they do is they give you a court date and then they release you and then you have to come back for your court date. Well, how often do you think that happens? And they were starting to well, this thing where... that's why they need the phones. That's why they give them the phones. Well, they were starting to this thing where they would actually take immigrant populations that were waiting for the court date or whatnot, and they would take them to other parts of the country. Well, Governor Abbott said, okay, well, I, I know where I can... <laughs> I know where we can send them. Washington, D.C. And, and I have to say at this moment... And again, I'm, I'm a very pro-immigration guy, but I do think it should be done legally. But I, I at this point... Um, the governors that do stuff like this are are already like moving toward the top of my list of people that I like the most just because I, I think they should go to Bel Air and maybe the Hamptons next. Um, because again, those are the same people that are calling the rest of those are the same people calling the people living on the border. Well, you're racist and bigots because you want to actually do something about this problem. And I've actually gone down and spoken to those people. And what was amazing was the number of people that I spoke to that are Mexican immigrants or immigrants of Mexican descent, um, where they, they've essentially said, look, uh, we don't have a problem with people coming to the United States, but this is actually kind of dangerous when we wake up at two o'clock in the morning and our dog's been shot. Right. So it's all the people in like Hampton and Bel Air and San Francisco and Washington, D.C., calling all these people bigots because they want a solution to this problem. So Abbott basically said, OK, you this you want this. Great. Here you go. Well, I have a question for you then. Do you think it's because the administration is angry at Abbott that Saki or however you say her name uh, is now blaming you know, the governor, uh, governor oh, Abbott yeah. for inflation. Well, that that's, that's interesting. Cause that came up. I mean, the Biden administration, every time they, they talk about prices going up, every time they talk about inflation, they've got a new villain for it. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, Elizabeth Warren came out and said it was all, you know, greed and greedy corporations. It was price gougers. Um, and then it was Putin. Then it was Putin. Now it's Governor Abbott. Um, can, can you, like, explain exactly how? Obviously, it's not true, right? Yeah. But, like, what is the thought process well, behind I've blaming? got that right here. Saki blamed Governor Abbott for increasing prices and inflation after enforcing enhanced safety inspections of vehicles that pass through ports of entry. The Biden admin said that these enhanced inspections are causing significant disruptions to the food and automobile supply chains. Okay, so first off, yeah, uh, the port of Los Angeles is not located in the great <laughs> state of Texas. Yeah, so true story. Th that is just patently absurd in of its face right Good there. Good point. That sounds um, like fake news. That sounds like, you know, something It's Trump beyond fake news. It's just a straight-up lie. Like, yeah. it, uh, so, like, this is actually kind of new to me. Like, I was not really aware that we've shifted the boogeyman from Putin. I remember, like, two days ago, it was, oh, it's all about Putin's price hike. Yeah. And now it's the... Abbott price hike, I suppose. I just, you've got to wonder, who are they speaking to that's actually going to believe this sort of stuff? Well, I mean, I think there's a certain group of the population that, again, the the overall ignorance we have, because we just had another we just had another report come out, another headline come out talking about 8.5% inflation, which is like the highest number in the last 40 years. But again, I when we at this table think about inflation versus what a lot of people think about inflation. What they've been told by their elected representatives are two entirely different things. So they see inflation as just kind of like prices going up. And at, at this point, if you're already, if, if you've already been essentially kind of programmed to believe that prices are determined by greedy corporations um, or, or, you know, bad Republicans, well then, yeah, I mean, this, this all makes sense. Uh, not to mention the fact that there can be an element of truth in something, right? So can a can a war in Europe with a major power that supplies a lot of oil affect gas prices? Yeah, of course it can. Is it the only thing affecting gas prices? No, demonstrably it is not. And so I that that is seems to have been the that seems to have been the play by the administration is take something that's partially true about what's going on and then make it the entire thing or make it the predominant thing. Um and don't investigate any further because that would definitely not go in your favor. Um, so and why would they need to investigate any further? It's not like the average American who's looking at the headlines is going to investigate anyway. So they, well, I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that all of us deal in what we call like in, in, in social or economic terms, heuristics, right? We take little shortcuts because we don't have complete information about everything that we do in life. So we go off of sources you know, we trust, sources headlines. we trust, right? Sources mm -hmm. we trust, headlines, you know, our own experience, the experience of a friend, et cetera. And then we, we make decisions about what we're going to do. So if you trust the Biden administration, which... Okay. Well, and the mainstream media as well. Yeah. The, one of the things is... is well, that, even mainstream academia with respect to economists now. Well, okay. I, I really think that when you surround yourself only with information sources that are going to tell you what you want to hear, um, you are, in essence, allowing yourself to, to become uh, kind of hardwired to automatically think a, a certain thing. It's one of the reasons why, I mean, ever since the rise of fake news, which is funny because we've always had fake news, mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that we do is we'll find one article and we'll look at whoever it came from and we'll think, okay, I need to back up this article and substantiate this claim because I'm not positive um, of the source. And so you try to find three or four other sources that are fairly, that you can see are fairly reliable. And that's one of the things we do. The problem is, is there are people on both sides of the aisle mm -hmm. who, instead of doing that and trying to substantiate the claim, we, they go ahead and, and just, absorb whatever it is that's going to um, solidify their position. Well, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I will say this. It, it's not simply a, and, and I, I don't think you're implying this, but it's not simply a quantity thing. Like, oh, I did three articles or I did four articles. Like the biggest thing that I always look for when somebody is going to provide analysis is do they actually believe in the laws of logic? And, and that sounds crazy that you would actually have to bring something like that up. But when you have, and, and when you have an academia right now, when you have a university class that is pumping out um, sociologists, psychologists, political scientists, and now economists, biologists, everything else, 
that have been taught through a postmodern worldview, which essentially says that, well, there's no real such thing as objective truth, right? There's your truth. Well, okay, now I can't even trust that you're using sound reasoning when you attempt to engage in empiricism. And so, I mean, I don't care how many articles I read from how many Harvard professors on a particular issue, if, if you buy into this postmodernist nonsense, I can't trust what you're saying because you honestly believe that your job is to get me to think a certain way, not inform me. And that's different. Right. I think I was more talking about getting other perspectives. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why is because a lot of folks, I don't, I would say there is a fair number of our society who um, they do not dig into the topic to try to learn from themselves because everything that's been taught to them has been sort of an appeal to authority. I have this experience, so mm -hmm. listen to me and don't question it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you saw that during COVID, don't question Fauci, don't mm -hmm. question Oh, he's the, he's the science. The science. <laughs> yeah, you mean and don't question the science. Except for when you do want to throw out the science. And that's, it's just really inconsistent. But the thing is, is that when you are intaking only what solidifies your own preconceived or pre-wired or, or pre-indoctrinated ideas, well, um, you're never going to break out of that. And, and so I guess the point of me bringing that up is, when you do see something that looks a little bit outrageous, definitely dig deep or don't just start sharing it to everybody. Well, I think what's interesting about inflation is that oftentimes we're involved in the news cycle. We look at what's happening and oftentimes those subjects do not touch us personally. Mm -hmm. It's not that like we go to the store and it's, you know, made an effect. But with inflation, there was a report that came out yesterday that inflation surges to 8.5% in the month of March. That's an effect that everyone is feeling. Whether it, when you're buying a new car or going to the grocery store to buy groceries, uh, you know, I'm interested in Nick for you to tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the ways people are seeing inflation take place and hitting their own pockets right now? Well, I mean, everyone's seeing it. I mean, it's, it's gas prices, it's grocery prices, it's consumer goods. Um, you know, what's one of the things that's interesting was people look at the, you know, the consumer price index and then there's the CPI and then there's the CPI core. And what CPI core is, is when they take out energy and food, right? And so a lot of times when you see people trying to show that inflation's not as bad, they'll say, oh, well, the CPI core is only that you took out energy and food. <laughs> like These are the two of the things that can be drastically affected sure. by people on a daily basis. But yeah. across the board, people are, are seeing those particular prices go up and they hear this term inflation. Well, real quick, let me move us into our argument of the day okay. segment, making the argument segment, which is titled, who's to blame for prices going up? And the first question of this segment is, what exactly is inflation? I want to jump in there because you were about to answer that. So I, I would say that the the modern definition of inflation, I'll just read something out because inflation is an overall increase in the prices of goods or services in an economy. I, I think that's problematic. I, I actually like the Milton Friedman approach, which he goes, inflation results when the amount of money printed increases faster than the creation of new goods and services. So Friedman explains that money is a token of the wealth of a nation. If more tokens than new wealth are created, it takes more tokens to buy the same goods. Here's an easy way to understand this, right? Prices are determined by supply and demand. All right. So if I got a lot of demand and a little supply, prices go up. If I've got a lot of supply and little demand, prices typically go down. That is how this works. Money is also a commodity. So if the government can simply just print out more paper money and give it to you, then the value of each unit, each individual unit, each dollar goes down because there's more of that supply, right? And, and the other problem with this is that there's no wealth associated with that because your wealth is not you having a bunch of little pictures of dead presidents on them. Right, wealth is the actual goods and services that make your life better that you trade that money for. And one of the big problems that we have right now with the way inflation has kind of been redefined, it's this idea that, well, when prices go up, that's inflation. Prices can go up for a number of reasons that make perfect sense based off of supply and demand issues. Right, when we typically, the, historically, the way that we've discussed inflation was it's when the government right, is, is infusing more paper money. Now it can come with other forms of uh, currency as well, but typically it's when they're infusing more paper money into the economy, uh, and usually it's to fund government spending, whether it's for a war, whether it's to try to get out of an economic downturn or whatever it is, right? They're not increasing the wealth of the nation. 
They're just printing out more dollars. So the individual value of each dollar goes down. So that's why the prices are going up. It's because the purchasing power of your dollar has been decreased through monetary inflation. I would actually add to a little bit of what you were saying in terms of like the true definition of inflation and point out that it's, it's not just money printing. It's also a combination of things like really, really cheap credit. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, for example, after the 2008 crash, um, the federal reserve did exactly what Keynesian economic theory dictates that you're supposed to do, which is they printed a ton of money and they lowered interest rates to almost zero. Um, but you didn't actually see inflation take place from, you know, about 2008 until basically COVID. Sure. Despite the fact that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet grew from something like $900 billion to like $4.5 which is a huge increase. Mm-hmm. But you, you saw relatively low inflation. And because the reason because of that was very low interest rates. The Federal Reserve had kept interest rates at almost zero. And there were a lot of deflationary pressures that offset the massive increase in the Fed's balance sheet. You had like new technologies, you had things like iPhones that became a big deal. Technology growth is a deflationary pressure. You had, I mean, let's be honest, the the country aged a little bit. Mm -hmm. An aging population, you can look at Japan as a good example of this, that's a deflationary pressure. Another thing that people don't like to talk about or complain about is offshoring jobs, sending them overseas. That's technically a deflationary pressure. That doesn't mean it's a good or bad thing. It's just a deflationary pressure. Explain deflationary pressure so real quick. A deflationary pressure is something that can offset what we would call an inflationary pressure. So mm-hmm. as Nick was pointing out, printing trillions of dollars, which is what the Federal Reserve has done in the last 24 months, that is a massive inflationary pressure. Yeah. Lowering interest rates to almost zero, which is what the Federal Reserve did after they tried to deleverage us from the 2008 crash. They tried doing that in 2018 and the market pitched a fit and they basically gave up and threw Mm -hmm. their hands in the air and said, you know, we're not going to do it anymore. And then COVID came along almost immediately afterwards and then they lowered them back down to zero and then printed trillions of dollars. Those two things are inflationary pressures. And traditionally, they would be offset by deflationary pressures in the form of technological growth or economic growth, or an aging population, or a, a positive trade balance. But, I mean, let's be honest. We had, everybody was locked away. Nothing was being produced. We certainly weren't importing or exporting in, any goods during COVID. And we printed trillions of dollars, and we just pumped it into the markets, and we sent everybody $1,200 checks. Mm-hmm. And now, w- what's incredible is, is that people got $1,200 checks. The federal government spent something like $6 trillion. They ripped us off is what basically sure. happened. They bribed us with money that didn't exist. Yeah. And now everything is going through the roof. But to answer your question in terms of like deflationary pressures, we were in a balance, not that we were necessarily doing the right thing, but from an, an inflation perspective, we were kind of treading water from 2008 until COVID because even though the Federal Reserve printed a bunch of money that was offset by other positive factors that was preventing the value of the dollar from collapsing. Those positive factors are are disappearing, or they're not necessarily disappearing so much as the Fed has just slammed the gas pedal as hard as they possibly could. And that balance has now been radically tipped in favor of those inflationary pressures. Well, the the total number of of Federal Reserve assets, right, and... um, December of 2002 was 0.72 trillion. So this is the amount of like currency that the that the Federal Reserve, like the amount of bonds of one, if you want to think about it. 0.72, Reserve, 72, less 72, than a trillion. 0. 0.72. To, in, in June of 2020, it was 7.17 trillion. Wow. So you're talking a 10x right? increase. And wow. 3 trillion of that was printed in like a year. It, it's actually even worse than that because yeah. now... He, you said what? It was seven trillion in June. Yeah, in June. It is now almost nine trillion. Yeah, and so like when you look at right before the two thousand eight crash, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And by the way, when we talk about balance sheets, what we're saying is the amount of money that the Federal Reserve, that the you know that Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, you know he's pressing the zero button on the computer. To the question that I have, and I think everybody that's listening has, is why. So let, let's look at it. Let's look at it from this standpoint because. So if inflation is a monetary phenomenon, like that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just a price went up because a mine in South America collapsed and now, you know, gold is more. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the government has engaged in policy, right? So that's what inflation is, monetary phenomenon. When you look at 
you know, who is doing this? It is the government, right? That's a combination of, of a couple of things. It's the treasury and it's the federal reserve. Now, as far as like which political party is to blame, both of them. Yep. Both of them. I mean, there, this is, if you wanted a more, if, if you wanted an issue where more people should be pissed off in a bipartisan nature, it's the whole concept of inflationary monetary policy because both parties have actively engaged in it. And what it means is, is that a lot of times from the political side, you know, they, they get to a point, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, right? And the Federal Reserve essentially has like two jobs. It's supposed to keep stable prices and it's supposed to maintain like the, it's supposed to prevent runaway inflation, right? But <laughs> that's not what it's doing right now because there's been this, there's been this push for a long time by politicians that every time there's an economic downturn, right, they try to print more money and throw it into the stock market and throw it into banks in and order to real make, estate and real estate in order to, to manipulate and to keep the bubble going. Okay. And so the, when you ask like, why would anybody engage in inflationary monetary policy when we all know it's a bad thing, generally speaking, right? It, it has a negative connotation. It's because if you play it correctly, um, you can, especially when you're talking about elections taking place every four years in the United States for the president, if you play it correctly, you can actually fuel an economic boom, which is not based off of increased productivity. It's based off of, you know, printed money. Sure. You can fuel an economic boom long enough to get past your administration and you can push the problem off into future generations. But we and, know what happened with that in Japan. Yeah, but yeah. but unless you have massive economic growth in order to make up for your inflationary monetary policy, right? And, and even then, it, it, I don't want to create this impression that oh well, it's okay as long no inflationary monetary policy is is bad, right? But if if you have massive economic um, gains, if you have massive wealth genuine wealth creation, you can you can blunt the effects of it. But from a political perspective, who wants to be the president, right? Who wants to be the president putting the pressure on the treasury or selecting the chairman of the Federal Reserve that's going to come in and say, hey, you know what? The only way, the only way that we can actually take the inflation out of the economy is we got to stop printing money, which means you got to have stop, you got to slow down government spending. And we're going to have to drastically increase interest rates. Which means what? Oh, I mean, if you which, drastically which means an economic downturn, it means it well, yes, typically it means an economic downturn. So you saw this like in 81 when it was uh, Paul, Paul Volcker. Volcker, when Paul Volcker became chairman of the Federal Reserve in the in the late 70s. Like so Reagan's coming into office. He raised interest rates. So right now, Fed, the, what's what's the Fed? Oh, the Fed rate is, is 0.25. So it's nothing. You know what it was under Volcker when he first came? He raised like it up to 21. 22. 22%. <laughs> 22 yeah. Because it was the only way you could take the inflation out of the economy was you had to raise the interest rates. Because a big part of money creation is when these banks are handing out all these loans. Well, Typically, the way that saving is supposed to take place, typically the way loans are supposed to take place is you take your money, you give it to a bank, right? I, I get my paycheck, I put it in the bank. The more money you are saving in the bank, the more money the bank has to loan out. So if there's a lot of savings, then the bank can loan out more money at lower interest rates gotcha. because it's trying, to, it's trying to encourage people to, to take out those loans. Now, by the same token, this sends a message. When it works properly, this sends a message to the marketplace that, hey, there's a lot of money being saved right now, which means there's going to be future consumption. And because interest rates are lower, this is a good time for me to invest in large capital projects. This is the time to buy that factory. This is the time to buy all that capital equipment because there's going to be more consumption in the future, right? But when those in, when those loans are not being done because there's more savings, when they're being done because the Federal Reserve has said, here's a bunch of dollar bills, right. well, now the consumption levels are all the same. So prices go up because everybody's competing for those resources, um, not just for current consumption, but in anticipation of future consumption. So it sends this perverse incentive through the marketplace, and it actually causes its own destruction. Well, is it possible that the supply chain issues are not only related to a lack of raw material, but an increase in purchasing power by individuals. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, what you've done is part of what you're doing when you, when you have artificially low interest rates and you print a lot of money is you're artificially increasing demand because 
if, if my purchasing power was based off, or if, if the dollar bills I had was based off of what I had earned and what I am trying to earn in the future and what I would like for consumer goods, I, I spend my money you know, more carefully. If you arbitrarily just give me a bunch of more dollar bills, well, now the number of things I'm going to go out and buy increases. Well, other people are also competing for those same items. And so the price goes up because you have increased demand, but you have the same rate of supply. Now, if you have increased demand and then you have something going on where the government through bad policy down at the, the harbor in Los Angeles with all these like horrible union contracts, plus you have COVID, plus you have all these other policies. Plus you have the $15 minimum wage. I mean, yeah. You, what you've done now is you have, you have hurt your supply chain at the same time that you have artificially increased demand for all of those materials. Um, and you've sent this perverse incentive because it, it is harder now for the people, the entrepreneur who is trying to make long-term decisions based off of the loans that they take, what they build and anticipation of future need. You've sent a perverse incentive to them because now the market is basically haywire. It, this, this advanced consumption is not because there's advanced productivity. It's because there's advanced money printing. Did the stimulus checks from 2020 and 2021 uh, speed up the purchasing? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd be yeah. fascinated to see if there was a breakdown or study done on what those checks were actually spent. Well, on and now as a result of, of inflation and fuel prices, the administration has said that they're mulling, you know, giving out checks now to combat, to yeah, ease insane. the burden of inflation, which is really only going to increase. Inflation. Oh, it's even worse. Than it reminds that. me of the old days when they used to bleed people. When they were sick, <laughs> it's like you know what's yeah. bad. We need it's, more leeches. They they just need less blood in their body. I, I was about to mention, you would be aware of this. Remember the proposal that the Democrats in the state house just came out with oh in Virginia to deal with gas prices. Gas prices are too high because of inflation, so we're going to hand out free money. Yeah, it let you know let, fifty dollar checks to everybody. Yeah, Youngkin to wants to to cut the. By the way. Just a reminder, Democrats raised the gas tax right before COVID yeah. happened. So if anybody wants to blame somebody for record gas prices in the Commonwealth of Virginia, lay it at the feet of filler corn oh, and Dick Sass law yeah. and the Democrats well, in the state Well, on the House. federal level, they're talking about increasing taxes to a huge degree as well on top of this. Well, it's and, just and, really well, bad timing. And that's, and, and that's the issue is because for all the blame that is going around for all these other uh, these other ancillary things— when it comes to inflation, it is almost, I mean, hear me on this. It is almost impossible for anyone to be blamed other than the government. So the, these claims that from Elizabeth Warren and the Biden administration that inflation is happening due to corporations' greed and Putin, <laughs> like, is any of that true? So it, makes, it makes you wonder if they've ever opened up a history book or if they lived through the 70s no. because <laughs> – I'm sorry, but under Carter, yeah. uh, inflation was something over 14% inflation. And in order to combat it, they increased interest rates over 17%. And most of us have never experienced that high of inflation or that high of interest rates. Yeah. But there are some folks who are saying this could actually, in, it, it's at a 40-year high now. Let's see if it gets to a 42-year high. Oh, because at forty-two, at a 42-year high, that number would be 14 over fourteen percent. Well, and and just so just so we're all you know um, you know bipartisan here, you really want to know who screwed this up royally, Richard Nixon, because Richard Nixon is the one that completely removed us from the gold standard whatsoever. I mean, the gold standard. They were, that we were also falling, dealing with an oil embargo and well, okay, a bunch but, of other oil issues. Well, the which problem the problem that we they are had though again now the problem they had though is that the economy can adjust to a lot of those other things because there's other there's other mechanisms whereby you can get supply. It may it may take some time. I'm not suggesting that if you have a major oil embargo you're instantly going to be able to But have if more your administration oil. has re, has made you dependent on foreign oil, which this administration has done more of, uh, your options are less. And yeah, then, but if, but if you look at so if you look at the original question here, right? Is 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 that the, are these greedy corporations? Let's just assume for a second that every corporation out there is just horrendously greedy. Let's just assume that. Okay. Here's the question I have to ask. Let's say you're a really, really greedy CEO and you're sitting there at your table thinking greedy thoughts. Does that make you wealthier? 
No, it demands an action. So when Elizabeth Warren says this can all be chalked up to greed, no, it can't. Well, because, I don't think they understand the word because, greed. Well, because greed does not mean greed does not automatically create wealth. There has to be an action. So what was the greedy action that Elizabeth Warren thinks takes took place? Well, she'll say, well, they raised prices. They exactly. So then what's the response to that? It, like, like if, I mean, because this is an yeah. important question to answer because we've seen polling that mm -hmm. shows, admittedly, there actually are a lot of Americans that I think intrinsically they might not think it through because they're not economists or anything yeah. like that but but i think there's a decent number of americans that know the federal government printed a lot it's not even federal government the federal reserve printed a lot yeah. of money and everything started becoming more expensive after that and they handed out all these free checks and everything started becoming yeah. more expensive and so like luckily there are a lot of americans that i do they are somewhat connecting the dots mm -hmm. there but we've also seen in polling that there's a lot of americans that genuinely think, oh, prices are going up because corporations are, you know, they're Raised making in record profits. They're being greedy and evil. Okay, so what's so the response That's that? an important question, right? Because so when they say, because when Elizabeth Warren says this is greedy corporations raising prices, like our response is to say, wait a second, the supply chain's a mess because of government policies. You've engaged in rapid inflation, which is subsidized, you know, demand without increasing any sort of supply and wealth. All of that has an adverse effect and an upward pressure on prices. So why would you blame a business for charging more for a product or service, which costs them more to produce as a result of what you've done? And their immediate response is to come back and be like, well, they're making record profits. Well, first of all, who is they? Because it's not everybody making record profits. That sure as hell isn't happening, right? They, they typically like to point to like, okay, Amazon or um, oil companies or whatnot. Okay, well, let's look at this logically. When you shut everything down for two years to where people were not traveling as much, yeah, Amazon and a lot, Zoom and other places, the, the, the places within the economy that were the most set up to benefit from people not being able to go out and travel saw an increase in profits. Guess what? That wasn't a bad thing. I think a lot of us were actually happy that Amazon was around and that we could order a lot of our stuff online as opposed to having to go to the store when half the stores are shut down. It, it did actually spur quite a bit of innovation. No, it, yeah, it, it did. Um, but the, the other side of so that's one thing to look at with this whole, you know, quote, record profits is that some companies certainly are more equipped within certain conditions to be able to make, you know, money during unique circumstances. That doesn't make them bad. The second thing you have to look at is, okay, what do you mean by record profits? Because if you just pumped a bunch of more money into the economy and people went out yeah. and spent that money and certain companies had the products and services that the people that you gave the money to wanted, then yes, they made record profits, but they only made record profits in the sense that you inflated the currency. I'm yeah. thinking of that meme. You know that meme that they keep crossing the number off and then they put yeah, a new yeah. number. The you know when you get a three percent raise, but inflation is five, six, seven, eight point yeah. five percent, and then the guys with the thumb up. Think of it from that point of view. If you get a three percent raise, yeah, you're making record income. Yeah, you made three percent more than you did last year. Yeah, but inflation's eight and a half percent. So in terms of real purchasing power, you're actually poorer off. Yeah. Than you used to be. So for some of these companies, and I'm sure that some companies yeah. that, you know, had some breakthrough technology and, you know, finally got something to market, maybe they are making record profits, but not every single company that is making record profits is actually in terms of nominal, yeah. you know, in inflation adjusted currency making more than they did mm -hmm. before. Yeah, they're, they're not making more than they did before. The other thing too, that they also have to take into consideration is this. It also, it has to be judged, and this goes to Christian's point. When are you counting the profits? So this is something that Elizabeth Warren and other people love to be able to talk about. They'll say, oh my gosh, you know, they made record profits, you know, this month. Okay. That might be because let's use oil as an example. If I bought my supply of oil that I'm currently selling you and I bought it at a hundred dollars a barrel, but I know because of other things that are going on within the world, it's about to be $130 a barrel. Do I sell you the oil based off of the price that I bought it for? Or do I sell it to you based off of the price I'm going to have to buy it for? You buy for? it based off the price you're going to have to Otherwise, buy Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to restock. Now, once I've sold it to you at that increased price, you can go back and look at it and be like, oh my gosh, look at that price gouging. 
okay, was it price gouging or was it an entrepreneur doing what, you know, entrepreneurs do, which is predicting what the market's going to look like several months from now and saying, if I'm going to have any hope of restocking. So essentially their profit ends up getting significantly cut the moment they've got to go and buy and restock. Yeah. But is, is Elizabeth Warren taking that into no. account when she goes out and she makes these Absolutely statements? Absolutely not. The oil comment that, you know, the, the oil example that you use, I think is actually a really important one because we all know who the other boogeyman is, right? Like now they're talking about, oh, it's it's Abbott's fault. But I mean, I remember just a few weeks ago, they were all saying that it was Putin's fault. Yeah. Sure. Oh, and gas was already going up before Putin. Before oh, yeah. everything I, happened with Putin, it was already I've seen just so many people up. that are like, give me mean tweets and $1.89 gas yeah. any day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> but usually the left likes to come with some kind of like a capping of prices. And yeah. if, if they start cap capping prices, we're going to see what we saw in the 70s again, shortages. where there were gas shortages. And it was based, I think, on the number of your license plate. Yeah. Certain, what day you could go to what the day station. you could go and get gas. Um, so we weren't even just talking about high gas. We were talking about lack of gas. Rationing. Which, right. Which, which is where their logic inevitably always leads. And it's people with just such a short memory. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, history is a good indication of how, how the future will go. And if you repeat the same mistakes of in the, the, yeah. they made in history, yeah. you're, you're bound to go that route again. Well, but again, it kind of makes, it makes sense from a political perspective, because if you can weather the storm during your administration and then save off all the problems for the next administration, you can come in and say, well, gosh, back when I was in charge and, and look, if we're being intellectually honest, again, we have to, we have to acknowledge a couple things here about a lot of that money printing took place during the last administration. It did. Right, it was Sorry. a continuation of that. The, is that yeah. is a reality? Well, it's been it's been practice over many administrations. It's been practice over many administrations. It became it became significant because of COVID. That was the justification for it. The other thing that we have to recognize is again, Richard Nixon is the one that completely removed us from any vestiges of the gold standard. Which means at that point there was no more sound money. Your money was no longer. I think it was seventy one. Seventy one. In seventy one, it used to be that your dollar was actually backed by something, and the reason why we were the reserve currency is because. We, we were considered to be a stable currency with a robust economy, and we followed the rules. And one of the rules was is that you can't just print whatever you want because you feel like it. It actually has to be tied to some sort of fixed commodity, which actually prevents a currency from going hyperinflationary. Well, and now what we're seeing since 71, we, we've seen a drastic increase in the amount of money printing that takes place because administration after administration has seen that, oh, gosh, when I get in an economic downturn, I don't want that on my watch pump the economy full of money and and yeah there there might be a downturn in the future but it won't be when i'm here so i, I want to wrap this segment up but i've got one question yeah. that i think is interesting what would happen if they just did nothing and didn't print any money and just kept their hands off of it so there's been i mean it would regulate itself a, a good example of this would be the economic downturn that took place at the very end of world war one mm -hmm. um everybody came home the war ended um, the U.S. suddenly had all of this debt that it had been <laughs> buying from the bankrupt allied powers like France and Britain. Um, and, and there was an economic downturn. And who was in office at the time was Warren G. Harding, mm -hmm. who is not really well known, but he's much his much more famous vice president, Calvin Coolidge. And the response from Harding and Coolidge was actually not joking, quite literally, do nothing. They did absolutely nothing. When, when the market tanked in 1920 and 1921. Um, and, and there were all sorts of people that were freaking out. This is around the same time that you had the, the concept that would become Keynesianism mm -hmm. start to, to ferment within, you know, uh, within political circles and economic circles. And you had all sorts of people that were like, somebody must do something. The market is failing. The economy is failing. And Harding just kind of sat there and, you know, crossed well, his arms. I, so I would, I would disagree with that. I, I would say that, um, he didn't. They didn't just do nothing. In fact, if you look at Harding's inaugural speech, he actually talked about how we need to practice brave deflation. If a president said that today, I mean, the economists would just lose their freaking minds. No, but if you look at what Harding and Coolidge did, they said not only are we not going to engage in you know a bunch of you know government spending in order to get us lift us out of this economic downturn, we're going to cut government spending. 
So they actively cut government spending wow. and cut taxes wow. at a time when, again, the, the Keynesian theory was, is that, well, no, 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 you, you need to increase government spending to make up for this economic downturn and, and get us through the, get us through the, you know, the bad times. And, you know, you can't do that if you're cutting government spending. So they actually did, you know, nothing would have been one thing. They took it a step further and did the exact opposite of what most economists, you know, today would say that you should do. And that's because the Keynesian school, and again, I know we really haven't, we've, we've mentioned John Maynard Keynes a couple times sure. here. We haven't really got into it, but, but Keynesian was basically, Keynesianism kind of roughly explained was this idea that government should save money within good times. And when there's bad economic times, that's when the government should infuse it in order to increase aggregate demand, which is sure. more, more people in the economy spending money and government programs. The, the other theory that there's two other major theories that go against that. One is the monetarist by Milton Friedman. The other is the Austrian theory of the business cycle. I find the Austrian theory really fascinating because it's essentially what we were explaining before is this idea that if the government, you know, infuses money into the economy, there's a cost for that. It actually has, it creates perverse incentives mm. and it actually fuels wow. the bubble, wow. right? It creates bubbles after bubbles after bubbles because it's this constant government response to problems that's created until you get to a point where it's so bad. And this is happening, by the way. This the is fueling happening. of the bubble. Yeah. So in, in the 80s, the market crashed in 87, and you yeah. had what was called the Greenspan put. We did a Y minute on yeah, this. Yeah, we did. And that fueled the tech bubble of the 90s. The tech bubble implodes, and the response from the Federal Reserve is the exact same thing, which fueled the housing bubble yep. of the 2000s. Wow. The housing bubble implodes in 2008, and again, the response from the Federal Reserve is massive money printing and massive uh, lowering of interest rates, which then fuels what we're now calling the everything, everything bubble. bubble. Yeah. And talking about uh, deleveraging, so like leverage is kind of like a glass of wine. It's good if you have one, if you have too many, you end up drunk and you're falling down on the floor. <laughs> um, so when the Federal Reserve tried to start deleveraging, talking about, you know, we need to embrace deflationary policy, Jerome Powell actually did try to do this for five in minutes. about 2018 for about five minutes. Yeah. In the market, he raised interest rates and he started pulling back um, uh, and reducing the Fed's balance sheet. And the, the market pitched a fit and started tanking. It fell something like, I, th I think it was like the S&P 500 fell something like 15 or 16% in like three or four months. And and Jerome Powell finally threw his hands up in the air and said, okay, I, he realized that the everything bubble had grown too large yeah. for him to, to back away from the precipice. And he stopped. And then immediately after he stopped, COVID happened. And then he had to slam on the gas pedal wow. again yeah. and print money. Okay. And now we're, we're in the situation that we're currently in. I think some of this also isn't, some of this is really fueled by political um, motivations. Oh yeah, uh, oh, and, yeah. and re-election. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, I would say re-election bids because none of us like to feel pain. Pain to all of us feels like a bad thing, mm. but the reality is that pain is a messenger. It is a messenger to tell you that whatever you're doing is hurting you. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like it has been. Um, the method that the government has used to stop the pain, but yeah. not the problem. And so this is like your doctor pumping you full of morphine when you really need your leg amputated. <laughs> and the pain- or just operated on. Yeah, just yeah. operated on. Just, yeah. just remove the cancer. But, but they don't, you don't, you're so afraid of the pain that you won't take care of whatever it is that, yeah. that is the problem. And so now you got gangrene going up your whole body and you're actually going to die. Yeah. And I just, I feel like it's a really good analogy yeah. because- in healthcare, there is sort of a, a leaning toward doing that in healthcare as well. Um, but I feel I feel like so much of this isn't some grand uh, economic, you know, ideologue thinking this is the right way economically. I think really what it is is they're feeding us a bunch of BS um, as to why they think this is better. When in reality, they just want to stay in power oh, it's, it's and they've a, got a re-election coming up and you can't feel the pain. If you feel the pain, you'll know they're doing a bad job. So yeah. they need to just pump you full of morphine, just slosh that money right through the system, give you your stimulus check and you'll calm down enough to vote for them for another term. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely correct. This uh, So much of this is political inertia 
based off of what we as an electorate have been conditioned to believe about our electorate. If the economy goes is going good, it must all be because the pre- the president has the mandate of heaven, right? And and yes. if and if the and if it's going bad, then it must be because the president has lost the mandate of heaven and must be punished and removed. When in reality, you, you look at the first two years of Reagan's administration. He came in, the economy was not doing well. There were certain elements that were getting a little bit better because there, there were, you know, again, Volcker had the right idea with you had to increase interest rates. But the first two years of the Reagan administration, stuff was not going that well. And then it started to turn around because they ripped the inflation out of the economy. And then all of a sudden you could actually build wealth, like genuinely build wealth and prosperity as opposed to just artificially creating it. So Nick, why don't we wrap this section up and all give right. us the argument that we need to make on inflation. So here, as always, is what I always tell you guys, when we talk about what's the short argument here, first of all, define your terms. When we talk about inflation, we need to be specific about what we're talking about. So don't let someone get away with this idea that, well, inflation is just a general increase in prices. No, what we're talking about is the government printing money and the individual value of each dollar you have going down as a result. And a great way to think about this, and Milton Friedman talked about this, is inflation is essentially a tax. Right, Because when the government prints that money and they initially spend it, they're getting the full value for it. The more it circulates within the economy, that's when your value starts to lose and the market starts to react to it. So the government gets the full benefit for what they're spending up front, and then you get screwed. That's what's going on with inflation. Some of the most common arguments that you'll hear is they'll say, again, this is about greed. Being greedy has never made anybody a single dollar. It requires an action. So when somebody comes with this simple response of, well, this is corporate greed, Okay, point to me the corporate action that led to what you believe is just higher prices. And they say, well, they've increased their prices. Okay, but why was that? Now, did they just increase it because of greed? Because if they did, why didn't they do it two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago? And oh, by the way, why didn't they, if they just increased their price by 20%, why didn't they double it or triple it even if they can just simply set what the prices are? Right? That's not a good explanation. A better explanation is there's been increased cost associated with creating the good or service that you want. So again, greed cannot simply explain it because if it did, again, why wouldn't corporations drastically increase their prices all the time? Right? Why, why do they only pick these certain times? Secondly, this whole idea of price gouging. Here's what I want you to understand about this whole concept of price gouging. This has become a politically charged way for politicians to try to convince you that a problem that they created is really the fault of somebody else, right? When they make it more difficult to provide you the product or service, prices go up. So when somebody engages in quote unquote price gouging, what they're usually doing is responding to an increased demand based off of limited resources that they possess. Right? None of these private companies are forcing you by law to buy their product. There's only one entity that does that, the government. So if anybody needs to be investigated for price gouging, it's the government, probably not the private sector because it's just an arbitrary term when you start to take into account all the factors which really contribute to prices going up or down. And then third, this whole idea that Putin is to blame. Does a major war going on within Eastern Europe affect overall prices? Well, it depends. Can it affect things like oil? Yes, it can, because Russia is a major oil producer. And oh, by the way, it was the Biden administration that significantly increased our dependency on Russian oil. So yes, that can be a contributing factor, but it certainly doesn't explain why prices were going up significantly across the board in several other fields prior to Russia ever invading the Ukraine. So this idea that you can point all to Putin and say it's his fault, I'm sorry, that's either really sloppy reasoning or you're being lied to. And quite frankly, they're lying to you. And here's the last thing that we want to talk about. And that is how do you, how do you survive all this? How do you address it? Well, the first thing you need to realize is, look, until we get an administration that is willing to do the right thing with respect to government spending and printing money, all right, inflation is going to be a reality. So the money that you have sitting in the bank is losing its value at a rapid rate. I'm not going to tell you what to do because I'm not an investment guy, but I will let you know that that is what's going to happen to all the money that you have in savings. Again, it goes back to that Milton Friedman quote that inflation is a ta- is a hidden tax and specifically it's a tax on your savings and it always hits the people living on fixed incomes the hardest. So the one thing we need is we need to stop the government spending. We need to stop the government printing. The other thing that we need to is a long-term solution is we need to start moving back towards sound money. The idea that there is nothing really prohibiting the government from simply printing out more currency and throwing it out there is a huge problem, not just for the Biden administration. It is a problem for all administrations because we've seen Republican or Democrat, they cannot resist themselves. So we need to go back to some sort of stable sound money policy, which puts, which limits the government's ability to arbitrarily print whenever they're trying to get themselves out of a political 
technically difficult situation. Hope that helps. So Nick, where can people go to expand their knowledge on these topics beyond this episode? So here's a couple of things that I would really encourage you to do. One, um, there's, there's, again, I mentioned the two schools, the monetarists and the, um, and the Austrian school. Personally, I prefer the Austrian school, but I also think Milton Friedman has some good theories with respect to the concept of inflation and what causes it. So Milton Friedman, and what I would encourage you to check out is his Free to Choose series. Uh, it was it was a really good series. They actually did a remake in the '90s of it because the first one I think was done in like the '70s, yeah, like the '80s, 70s. yeah, '70s, 70s and or '80s. 80s. Um, but Milton Friedman's free to choose. You can go online right now to YouTube and you can watch it for free. Um, and he's got some really interesting segments in there. Some very good conversations. You get to see a young Thomas Sowell there also talking, and that's awesome. With the afro, right? It's yes, it's really interesting. Yeah, it is old school Thomas Sowell. Uh, Ludwig von Mises. So Ludwig von Mises is one of the the primary people within the Austrian school movement. So you can go to the Mises Institute and you can look at what he had to say about inflation. I had some really good uh, articles that he wrote on that. Finally, if you're looking for another podcast, like if for some reason you want to cheat on us with wow. another podcast, which you should never do, but but if you have to, uh, there's a really good series between Tom Woods and Gene Epstein, where Gene Epstein actually uh, hosts the So Home Forum, where they have a lot of great debates over there. But there's a, a recent episode with Tom Woods and Gene Epstein where they're actually talking about inflation, everything that goes into it. And again, Gene Epstein is a very, very like rigorous, um, you know, economist. Used to be the head economist for um, I think the New York Stock Exchange. Um, but he'll go through, and again, he doesn't pull any punches. Like all the p politicians get slammed, but he can even see when it. So Tom Woods and Gene Epstein, that is another great resource that you can go to in order to find out more about this specific issue. Well, now that we know that we're all heading into an inflation-induced apocalypse, <laughs> we're headed there. Now you sound like Christian. <laughs> we're all doomed. <laughs> He's changing me. Yeah, we're but this doomed. time it's not an electoral doom. It's everybody is <laughs> Everybody, the everything bubble. At least we're together. <laughs> Well, I w I'm interested to know what are some of the ways y'all are, you know, preparing for an inflationary apocalypse. What y'all might be doing on a day to day basis to, you know, combat increasing prices. More, more guns and cattle. It's interesting <laughs> because when inflation was out of control and interest rates got out of control under Carter, people had solutions back then too. They got really into doing barter and trade. I know mm. my family did that. My dad owned a carpet cleaning business, and would trade his services for. Uh, vouchers to a restaurant or wow. for um, groceries. So uh, the government actually put an end to that and made it illegal. You had to track it as income because they definitely wanted their cut yeah. and they were not getting yeah. their cut. I was about to ask if it was under the table or not. It was it was outside of the government's purview, and it it hadn't been something that they had addressed legally yet. And that was a great way did. to say it. It was outside of the purview; they hadn't yeah. addressed it legally yet. <laughs> and then they went ahead and addressed it. So, um, yeah. Well, I don't, I, look, on, honestly, so we we have we have ten acres, which is about. 90 shy of what I would like to have. <laughs> but, but on that 10 acres, what, one of the things I love is, you know, Tina and I, uh, I, I always wanted to live kind of out in the country. We're both growing up, we kind of done that. And we wanted our kids to grow up there. So luckily enough, we got this place when our oldest daughter was seven. She's 19 now. And so they've, they've grown up running and playing down by the creek and building forts. And, and we've been able to you know, do some pretty extensive gardening. We have chickens. We, we have, have goats. goats. We have bees. Yeah, we have bees now. So, um, and my my goal, honestly, I, I would have liked to have done it this year, and this probably would have been a better year to do it. Um, but definitely next year, I've got to fence off some more acreage. But one of the things I've been doing a lot of research on is how much can I how much can I do on my ten acres? And ten acres for a family of five is actually more than enough. To be clear, we are trying we are trying to get something with more acreage. Yeah. We even we are. offered on a house with a hundred acres, yeah. that would have been amazing. But but it's that it's that whole idea of okay, for my family of five, um, what what would I need? What would I need to drastically reduce being able to go to the grocery store? And I, I was actually watching, I feel bad, I, I forget her name now, but she's a homesteader and she was talking about her family of four. Um, they have like, you know, 20 broilers and they usually do, you know, one or two pigs and half a cow. Broiler is a chicken, right? Yeah, sorry, sorry. That's a chicken. Thank you. You, um, you better do be careful doing this because you know under FDR, you would really be messing with interstate commerce <laughs> uh, by growing your own food for your the own worst Supreme Court decisions ever. Because Bill back Byrne. then they used the 
the interstate commerce clause to say that people growing produce on their own property for their own consumption yeah. could be regulated and and fine. dealt with and fined yeah. because they were because they weren't out buying it from the marketplace. Yeah. They were affecting interstate commerce. Well, that's uh, like our our goal. My goal within the next twenty four months is to be in a position with based off of what I grow. So like actually actually going for like creating my own feed and stuff like that, not having to go and supplement feed, but between grass, between feed, between the vegetable garden, I, I'm trying to cut out my meat consumption from the grocery store by about 70%. And I'm going to try to cut out kind of like the produce portion, probably by more like 40%. Um, or I don't know if you've thought of this one, but this is a brilliant idea. So listen, okay. Right. Uh, we could, grow corn for ethanol See, because <laughs> I'm not doing it get paid yeah. by the federal government Oh my god! Uh, yeah. because um, the president was just speaking in Menlo, Iowa. Um, oh, in Iowa. Of all yeah. Countries. It's the country's largest corn ethanol producing facility. And he formally announced the authorization of E15 gasoline in the United States uh, to increase the fuel supply. Um, his actual quote was, um, your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator dictator declares war, commits genocide, and half uh, a half a world away. Sorry, this is Biden speak. Um, <laughs> to help deal with this Putin price hike. No, instead, Putin. instead, your budget is being totally affected by a senile okay, but old man who that, doesn't understand economics. Uh, but anyway, it. It yeah, but would, E15 gas is going to be horrible for your engine. Um, E10 is really bad. Like E10. Ethanol in general yeah. is bad for engines. It says um, E10 gas. And we all know, like all of us started buying ethanol-free gas for all of our equipment, you know, mowers and everything right. else that we're using because it was gumming up the works and, and all of that. And I just quickly looked up, why is this happening? You know, what are the effects? And it says um, that... E10, and this is not E15, and mm -hmm. that we're talking about percentages that can be added sure. to your gas. Um, E10 is very corrosive to rubber parts, gaskets, seals, metals, plast and plastics, which causes engine damage. Carburetor uh, damage. So it could dislodge deposits in order for engines and fuel systems, causing blockages. Um, it should only, it, it's funny, this article says it should only be used with expert advice, which means pretty much never. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I it, tend it, to agree. I'm and sorry. now we're talking about increasing it to E15. Well, so, and I, I would not, I would not be shocked if what's going, again, we want to talk about that political inertia and why would you make stupid decisions? Why would you make stupid policy decisions? Well, because in the short run, he's going to run out there and he's going to say, oh my gosh, look, I've reduced our dependency on fossil fuels by increasing the ethanol component. He says it, it'll I've save reduced, people I, 10 cents. I've reduced, I've reduced fossil fuels because of the ethanol component. It's going to save you 10 cents in the immediate, you know, in the immediate term, but it's going to do such damage to your engine that you're going to get pissed off at your car. And when it comes down to buy and what is he going to do? He's going to come right around the end run with a huge subsidy oh, yeah. to buy the sort of cars. vehicle that he thinks you should buy. And when you use those things and those things corrode in your vehicle and your car starts running poorly, what happens? Oh, you have less fuel economy. Yeah. It's less fuel efficient. Or you're and spending more money. That 10 cents that you're saving, you're spending that at the mechanic. Yeah. Nick yeah. makes yeah. a really good um, analogy. He says it's like breaking somebody's leg and handing them a crutch and saying, see, Without me, you couldn't walk. The The issue is he made us more dependent on yeah. Russia um, for our oil. And now he's trying to make up for it by causing a huge shift in in people growing produce. Now people are going to abandon growing certain produce, which is going to raise prices yeah. even more and um, start growing this corn. Yeah. And we saw it when they introduced E10, we, it's we just saw, going to grow we saw even increase, more. We saw, we saw higher prices on corn, which which actually affected the um, meat prices because mm -hmm. corn is obviously used as a filler for um, beef and things like that. But you also saw major food shortages in Africa as, as a result of more and more people not only switching their crops over to corn, but then doing it for ethanol as opposed to food consumption. Yeah, it's not the same thing. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it, it it really caused a lot of problems. It was so many problems and it ended up being so bad that they kind of like shied away from it. And now he's doubling down on it, not because he thinks it's a good long-term solution, but because he thinks it'll provide some immediate relief. It will look like he's doing it's something. Political cover it's political it cover. It's political cover. He's pumping it's, you full he, of the morphine. And th th yeah. this goes to everything that we have talked about today, to be honest honest like 
I, I wanted to bring this up earlier. Part of me wants to be honest and say, at the end of the day, this isn't actually Biden's fault so much as it is the Federal Reserve's fault. Mm-hmm. Biden is making it worse through his yeah. actions, and yeah. he's he's misleading people and making them, you know, t- trying to pin the blame on Putin or Abbott or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, this is quite frankly the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell's fault more than it is Joe Biden or Donald Trump or really any political elected yeah. person. The Federal Reserve is in control of all of this. It's why we know the name of the chairman of the Federal Reserve today. And if you went back 20 years ago, nobody would have really, the average person wouldn't have been able to tell you who was running the Federal Reserve. The, the only, I don't think the I, average I don't, person I don't, could tell you now. Or I don't think, I well, like wait, a second. Ever. Can now. wait a second. I, I, don't, I don't totally disagree with that statement, but I will say this. When you have a president or when you have political leadership that has the will to be like, no, we have to we have to choose the hard right over the easy wrong because long term it's going to be better for us. You usually end up with a chairman of the Federal Reserve that's willing to make better decisions. That's true. Right, you get, so you get a Paul Volcker. You get yeah. a Paul Volcker instead of a Jerome Powell. Oh yeah, but make and, no and mistake. Even, this and even is when Biden's Jerome, fault. And I even mean. when Jerome Powell tried to do some of it, he got political pushback. Mm-hmm. Right, and and again from Republican administrations too. So this this is the whole idea where it's like, look. If, if this is one of those issues where if you're waiting around for a politician to save you, I'm sorry, it's probably not going to happen at this point. You're going to have to save yourself because multiple administrations, both political parties have demonstrated that it, it is rare for them to have the political will to, to speak hard truths to the American people with respect to what's going to have to happen. And, and unfortunately, the only hard truths that they want to speak are, are usually nonsense hard truths like AOC telling us, well, you're all going to die in 10 years because of global warming if you don't convert the entire economy and let AOC run it, right? That's not a hard truth. That's just idiocy. But that's the point where we're at right now is that people are going to have to make preparations in the short term, right, with respect to what you can do. Um the whole idea of the whole idea of bartering and stuff like that. I know that sounds ridiculous to most of us, and I don't think that's necessarily going to be a, become a widespread thing. But are you going to get more and more people saying, "Hey, um, again, I'll, I'll clean the carpets. You give me, you know, gift certificates, and we just don't tell the IRS about this, right?" Are you going to see that? Absolutely, you're going to see that. Are you going to see more people getting interested in small things that they can do with respect to gardening and things? Absolutely. And you know what? Some of those things are not bad things. Mm-hmm. These are good things. It is unfortunate that it has gotten to a point where our political leadership, the leadership of the Federal Reserve, has failed us so much that that's what it's going to come to. But you know, let, let's see the good stuff that we can yeah. we can get out of this. And I just want right. to say, hold on, you you sort of let Biden off the hook a little bit, and I'm just not for it. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, but he hasn't. It's not just that he's our president right now. He was the vice president for eight years under Obama, and he lived his whole life in government as he was a senator. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but he's definitely to blame along with his whole ideology. Um, And oh, I'd certainly blame the ideology. And that's not to say Republicans haven't done the same, but our track record's definitely better. Um, And as far as what what people are doing, I did want to mention one little thing um, in order to combat this, because one of the biggest, you know, issues is fuel. And it just it it begs the question. Uh, Hamilton, how did you like renting a Tesla over the weekend? Oh because I, he's got this gas guzzler outside that's like bleeding fluids, and he he's just riding it to its last leg. Well, I don't drive a whole lot. No, around, he does uh, not now. Town, so there's not a huge need for a new ride. But I was driving down to North Carolina to see my family this past weekend, and um, and gas is so high, it's a gas guzzler, and I said, well, you know, maybe now would be a good time to rent a Tesla. Uh, just, you know, maybe spend a little extra money than gas, but a good excuse to really get the experience of it and see if it's something I actually do want to purchase. I was worried about you having to stop and charge it a bunch of times. So it, how was you know, that? It didn't end up being a major problem. I stopped twice on the way down to the Charlotte area and charged for about 10 to 12 minutes each location. I was back on my way. It wasn't, you know, didn't have to stop much longer than it would take to, you know, a normal stop. So did home. you calculate how much you would have spent in fuel versus how much you spent in I electricity? I would have spent a total of $250 in my truck, and I spent a total of $42 in charging <sighs> on that trip. 
So it was a significant difference. But the best part about it was the autopilot. I thought that was fun. And when I got back uh, this past Monday night, Christian and I sat down and ran the numbers for five-year prediction of how much the monthly cost would be and the yearly cost and the sales tax and everything of that nature. Did it and compare it to uh, you know a standard gas you know car? And what we realized was that due to inflation. That the, you know, you get a loan for six, 48, 60, 70 months, whatever it is, the APR on that loan from Tesla at 2.99%, um, Tesla is actually <laughs> paying you over the term of that loan to le- uh, get the loan from them on the car. Because the APR on the loan is significantly lower than yeah. the inflation rate at 8.5%. So, Christian, you probably can explain that a little bit yeah, better so than I can. It's not like they're literally yeah, paying yeah, they're you. They're not, right, money, right. You're, not, because, you're not making a profit yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll try to make this as, as quick as possible because I know that we're at the end of the show here. Yeah. But long story short, what as we were talking about earlier with – you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve printing money and, you know, we were talking about corporations having record profits, sure. but some of them not actually having record profits because that inflation is eating into, you know, from inflationary terms, that's eating into to that, that margin there. So what that means is, is that if the inflation rate, if the dollar is depreciating in value, because that's what it is, mm-hmm. if the dollar is depreciating in value at almost 9%, at 8.5%, and yet you're taking out a loan that is significantly less than eight and a half percent. In this case, it's effectively three percent. Mm-hmm. The value of that money that you would be paying is going down over time, right. which means that in a way you are basically being subsidized to take out debt. This is why, quite frankly, in high inflationary periods, this yeah. is why the wealthy buy tons of real estate and they yeah. take out loans to do it because they are making money going into debt. This is not direct financial advice, but one of the things that you see when you have high periods of inflation and low interest rates, and we're starting to move into higher interest rates, but right now they're still very, very low, is take out tons of debt because the value of that debt will be worth significantly less than what it currently is by the time you have Secure to actually debt. pay it off. Secure debt. Yeah. I'm not saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> not, not saying more credit cards. borrow $100,000 and go to Vegas. Yeah. Right. I'm saying put it into things. And so like in a car, that's actually going to be a depreciating asset. Sure. Although a Tesla will depreciate less than other cars. Right. This is why I said real estate. Yeah. Because real estate is an asset that goes up over time. You can't, unless you're the Dutch, you can't build more land. <laughs> and so, so like this is, this is why rich people, wealthy people, yeah. they will borrow money and they will put it into assets that are income generating assets. They, they won't borrow money and then put it into a, you know, a Mustang that will depreciate yeah, in yeah. value. They'll put it into real estate that'll grow in value over time. Well, and on that note, now that you've thoroughly pissed off Dave Ramsey. Wait, hold on. <laughs> so Hamilton. Are you getting the Tesla? Oh, we don't know. We don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I think he's getting they, it. They, they are pretty expensive. We can yeah. hedge our bets. Tell us what you think in the comments. Tell us, should he get the Tesla? <laughs> well, should he go into debt? Well, what I will say is that new Elon Musk tattoo you got looks great. Anyways, so um, <laughs> also one other thing I want to tell everybody, if, if you want to learn more about inflation, but you don't got a lot of time, of course, you just sat here for an hour and listened to us talk about it. Um, go to the Why Minutes. It's another show yep. that we host that, that Hamilton produces. Great show. Um, you know, Christian does a lot of the research uh, scripting for this. We have a like a three-minute video called Why a Nation of Trillionaires Couldn't Buy Bread. And if you want to see just how bad this can actually get, go watch that video on the Why Minutes, Why a Nation of Trillionaires Couldn't Buy Bread. Bread on the once, YouTube channel, the Y Minutes with Nick Freitas. Y Minutes with Nick Freitas on the YouTube channel. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.